Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 30th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started with our litigation report. The estimated cost of NFL dementia claims is now approaching $2.1 billion. Nearly 2,000 former players have now filed their paperwork in a federal courthouse in Philadelphia. The numbers are reaching the point where the litigation qualifies as a mass tort, a legal term that has been used to describe litigation on tobacco, asbestos, and toxic medication cases. The estimated combined total loss of $2.1 billion for the NFL is a worst-case scenario. The lawyers representing the players will have to produce evidence to support their assertions that the league knew of the consequences of concussions, actively concealed them from the players, and even misled players and the public with bogus medical opinions. The NFL and its own high-powered lawyers will argue that the league has always been concerned first and foremost about player safety, and that many problems players may have should be removed from the courts that produce large jury verdicts and sent to arbitrators who serve under the agreement between NFL owners and the players' union. The league is trying to convince U.S. Judge, uh, Court, U.S. District Court Judge Anita Brody in Philadelphia, where the players' lawsuits have been consolidated, that she must dismiss all of the players' claims. Known among lawyers and judges as preemption, the league's argument will be based on the idea that the players and the owners are governed by a series of collective bargaining agreements that began in 1968. The preemption argument is powerful and worked well for the owners last year when they used it to stop the players from obtaining a court order that would have ended the owner's lockout. And it will be a tempting argument for the 77-year-old Judge Brody, who could use it to dispose of thousands of individual lawsuits and a massive class action that will otherwise take years to resolve. Lawyers from the players claim that the concussion-caused injuries and deaths could not have been a part of any collective bargaining agreement because the league did not publicly acknowledge any connection between concussions and cognitive disorders until 2010. If Judge Brody decides that concussions were part of the collective bargaining agreement and sends the players' claims to arbitration, it would be a major setback for the players. Arbitration awards are usually dramatically lower than awards made by juries, and the private arbitration process would remove the issue from public scrutiny that would otherwise force the NFL to consider more generous settlements. A decision on the preemption issue is not expected until November or December. The NFL players and owners have fought epic courthouse battles over free agency and other labor issues, including the lockout litigation that reached the U.S. Supreme Court. The concussion litigation may be the biggest battle of them all. And a new WCAB panel decision clarifies a lien claimant's statute of limitations. Here's what happened in the case of Velatoro versus Kern Labor Contracting. Angel Velitaro sustained an admitted industrial injury in 2001 to his upper extremities. Three days later, he received treatment at the Center for Orthopedic Surgery's Outpatient Surgery Center 
in order to close a laceration of his left palm and to repair damage to his left little finger. There was no dispute at the time that the surgery was reasonable and necessary. Although the surgery center did not file a lien claim with the WCAB at the time, it billed Paula Insurance for $7,500. Paula paid the surgery center the sum of about $1,060 of this $7,500 bill. Paula entered into a liquidation in 2002, and its covered claims were taken over by SEGA. Neither Paula nor SEGA was ever notified that the surgery center was seeking further recovery or was unsatisfied with the payment it had received from Paula. SEGA then settled applicant's claim of injury by compromise and release in August 2002. In February 2011, nearly a decade later, the surgery center filed a lien claim for the balance of their bill. This filing occurred more than the Labor Code Section 4903.5 time limits of six months from the date of which the CNR was approved, more than five years from the date of the injury, and more than one year from the date they provided the treatment. SEGA did not, however, provide the surgery center with a copy of the approved CNR until April 7, 2011. The work comp judge disallowed the lien as being untimely pursuant to Labor Code Section 4903.5. The center petitioned for reconsideration, which was denied, and the dismissal of their lien was affirmed. The WCAP panel confirmed that Labor Code Section 4903.5 was enacted in 2002 and became effective on January 1, 2003. Before then, for cases like this one, there was no statutory time limit for filing a lien claim. Here, the surgery center claims a valid lien in 2001 or early 2002 before Labor Code Section 4903.5 became effective on January 1, 2003. However, the WCB panel concluded that the statute of limitations applies to the lien prospectively after the statute's effective date. Legislation that establishes a limitation period is considered procedural and is applied retroactively to pre-existing causes of action so long as parties are given a reasonable time in which to sue. The Surgery Center also complained that SEGA's failure to serve them with the order approving compromise and release told the application of the statutes of limitations. The WCAB rejected this contention. And now our fraud report. The license of a Monterey County chiropractor has been revoked for workers' compensation fraud. Stephen Thompson, a Monterey County chiropractor, was convicted in 1997 of seven misdemeanor violations of uh, involving the presentation of a false or fraudulent claim for workers' comp. And in 2000, the Board of Chiropractic Examiners had revoked his chiropractic license based upon evidence of insurance fraud relating to his conviction. Now, in April 2007, the Board of Chiropractic Examiners filed an accusation against his wife, licensed chiropractor Aster Keifel Thompson, seeking revocation or suspension of her license as well. 
The accusation alleged that Aster Keifel Thompson, in connection with her husband, Stephen Thompson, owned, managed, and controlled a number of business entities described collectively as the Thompson-affiliated clinics. The accusation set out 35 separate causes or allegations of unprofessional conduct by setting up several sham professional medical corporations, each of which was ostensibly owned and directed by a licensed physician, but was in fact effectively owned and managed and controlled by management corporations created and operated by the Thompsons, chiropractors. The Thompsons presented to the public, insurers, and other third-party parties the appearance that they were properly constituted to provide both medical and chiropractic services when indeed they were not. This was allegedly a scheme to submit fraudulent and excessive claims for the payment of workers' comp and other health benefits. These same activities had resulted in civil and other penalties in 2003 in a Monterey County civil suit against the Thompsons. The trial court in the civil case found that these defendants had violated the insurance code by submitting fraudulent claims for compensation and imposed civil penalties against them of nearly a half million dollars. The 6th District Court of Appeal upheld this civil judgment in 2006. Now, in August 2008, the Board of Chiropractic Examiners issued a decision revoking Aster Keifel Thompson's chiropractic license after 15 days of hearings over six months. The Court of Appeal affirmed the revocation of her license in the unpublished opinion of Aster Keifel Thompson versus Board of Chiropractic Examiners. The court reviewed the evidence in the case in great detail and concluded that the findings of the board are unquestionably supported by the evidence and that the medical corporations were in fact sham creations in violation of state law and that they were not actually owned and controlled by physicians. This case provides great detail about the formation, role, and use of management companies and other sham organizations behind some unethical medical service vendors. And in regulatory news, the WCIRB is now engaged in a comprehensive evaluation of what's known as dual wage classifications. The California Insurance Commissioner adopted six construction and erection classifications back in 1986 that were based not only on the type of construction work performed, but also on the hourly wage paid to the employees. These classifications are now known as dual-wage construction classifications. They were adopted in response to complaints from a segment of the construction and erection industry who complained that the cost of workers' compensation insurance relative to loss experience for employers who paid higher wages to their employees was significantly greater than the cost for employers who paid lower wages. A study confirmed that high-wage-paying employers assigned to certain construction classifications were on average paying more premium per lost dollar than low-wage-paying employers. As a result, six selected construction classifications were divided into two classifications each, distinguished by the hourly wage paid to the employees. Each classification specified an hourly wage threshold. The payroll and losses of employees whose hourly wage equal or exceeded the threshold were assigned to the high-wage classification, 
and all other employees were assigned to the low-wage classification. Until recently, the wage threshold for each dual-wage classification has been regularly updated based upon wage inflation in the construction industry. The governing committee of the WCIRB directed that they conduct a comprehensive study to determine the continued viability and or possible modification of dual-wage classifications. The 525-page draft report of this study is now available from the WCIRB. The new study concludes that, despite some shortcomings, dual-wage classifications have generally been perceived as effective in addressing potential inequities in premium levels by wedge levels in construction classifications. These classifications largely address the inequities in premiums that would otherwise exist due to variation in wage levels among employees assigned to the pertinent construction classification. However, dual-wage classifications are costly to administer for employers, insurers, and the WCIRB. The wide disparity in rates between the low-wage and high-wage classifications has been an incentive to commit fraud and to abuse the proper use of dual-wage classifications. Although relatively few fraud cases involving dual-wage classifications are reported, fraud does appear to be significant according to the study. There are a number of potential indicators or red flags that may be observed at the underwriting or premium audit stages, however, that could be used to combat this fraud. And in medical news, a new medical study shows that complementary alternative care helps relieve low back pain. Nearly 8 of 10 Americans will experience lower back pain at some time in their lives. Persistent low back pain is a common, incapacitating, costly, and difficult-to-treat condition. But a new study says that many patients might benefit significantly from an individualized, multidisciplinary team-based model of care that includes access to licensed complementary care practitioners such as chiropractors, massage therapists, and acupuncturists in addition to conventional care providers. The objective of this new study was to explore the feasibility and effects of a model of multidisciplinary integrative care for subacute low back pain in an academic teaching hospital. This was a pilot randomized trial comparing an individualized program of integrative care plus usual care to usual care alone for adults with low back pain. Colleagues from Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Group Health Research Institute in Seattle, and Brown University in Rhode Island compared conventional therapy alone to the combination of an integrated program of complementary care and alternative medical therapies plus usual care. Researchers reported significant differences between the two randomized patient groups and outcomes, which included pain, functional status, and difficulty performing routine self-identified challenging activities. Integrated care participants experienced significantly greater improvements at 12 weeks than those receiving usual care alone in their symptoms. These differences persisted at 26 weeks. 
Controlled studies such as this one gradually work their way into medical treatment guidelines, which in turn can support a request for authorization for this type of treatment through utilization review. And in financial news, Liberty Mutual's chief executive left no doubt on where he believes the blame lies for inadequate workers' compensation rate levels. He is criticizing the states of New York and Massachusetts in particular for not approving steeper increases in premiums. During a conference call to discuss Liberty Mutual's financial results, the president and CEO of Liberty Mutual said workers' comp rate increases in the second quarter were in line with increases seen in the first quarter, up about 9%. However, he added that much more is needed for Liberty and the industry to become profitable in the workers' compensation line. He directed blame towards regulators, pointing to New York and Massachusetts as examples of states that continue to be unresponsive to the industry rate needs. In the second quarter, Liberty Mutual reports net income of $139 million compared to a net loss of $179 million in 2011's second quarter. Revenues rose 7%, or $597 million, to $9.16 billion in the quarter. The company reported a combined ratio of 1059 for the second quarter of this year, down six points from the same period last year. The California Workers' Compensation Institute has issued the third edition of its injury scorecard, featuring detailed data on California work injury claims for head and spinal injuries without spinal cord involvement. These claims represent only a small fraction of all workers' compensation cases, but a disproportionate share of the costs, as they include catastrophic cases that are among the most expensive in the system. The scorecard reflects data from open and closed claims from accident years 2001 through mid-2011, which resulted in total paid losses of more than half a billion dollars. Head and spinal injuries accounted for only one out of every 200 California job injury claims, but they consumed 1.7% of paid losses. Medical-only cases comprise a relatively small share of the head and spinal injury claims, while a larger share of the claims are temporarily disabling cases. Well over a quarter of the head and spine cases also result in permanent disability payments. Unlike other types of injury claims, average paid loss, losses payments on head and spinal injury claims never declined following the 2004 workers' compensation reforms. The next scorecard in the series will focus on claims involving sprains of the shoulder, arm, knee, and lower leg. A new CWCI report says that self-insured losses rose by $25 million in 2011. However, claim frequency showed a little change. On the other hand, total incurred losses rose to nearly $620 million, up 4.2% more than 2010. The new report summarizes the experience of private self-insured employers who covered over 2 million employees last year and reported a total of over 77,000 claims in 2011. Even though the total number of reported claims continues to dwindle over the past decade, 
private self-insured loss experience in California has tracked with insured claims experience with both now well above the post-reform low of 2005, driven up by sharp increases in claim severity. The growth in medical losses has been the biggest cost driver since 2005, though indemnity losses for private self-insured employers have jumped as well. A new NCCI study says that TTD duration increased nationwide. A previous NCCI study found that the average duration of TTD indemnity benefits began to increase at the onset of the recent recession and that the rate of increase had moderated for injuries occurring during the first six months of 2010. The new NCCI report says that this more moderate rate of increase continues for injuries occurring through the first six months of 2011. The ultimate mean duration of TTD indemnity benefits rose from 130 days for accident year 2005 to 147 days for accident year 2009 and rose again to 149 days for claims in the first half of accident year 2011. Generally, durations for given natures of injury or parts of body follow the country-wide pattern but there are some notable exceptions. Duration for claims with prescribed opioid pain medications is clearly higher than for claims without opioids being prescribed. Within selected natures of injury, claims with at least one prescription for opioids have over 50% longer TTD duration than claims without opioids being prescribed. The contracting industry not only has the longest average durations of any industry group, and a lack of return-to-work opportunities might be part of the reason for the larger-than-average increase in duration for contracting. The TTD duration of hernia claims decreased an astonishing 34% from 1998 to 2010. This is very likely due to improvements in surgical methods for the treatment of hernias, which include enhanced stitching techniques, improved prosthetic materials, and laparoscopic procedures. These improvements have resulted in a lower recurrence rate of hernias and fewer claimants with chronic pain post-surgery. This is all good information to keep in mind when setting reserves. And in regulatory news, Researchers at the University of California, Riverside, identified labor subcontracting and lack of employer accountability as contributors to unsafe working conditions in the warehouse industry in the region. They say that inadequate training, sleep deprivation, pressure to work faster, and inadequate state and federal OSHA funding has led to unfair and unsafe working conditions for warehouse employees in the Inland Empire. In 2010, 114,000 people were hired in warehouses in that region. This workforce is mostly Latino, of which half are immigrants. Researchers said temporary workers who lack benefits and are paid low wages do much of the work. The report suggests that federal and state officials need to closely monitor working conditions in the warehouse industry and enforce protective labor laws and retail companies must be held accountable for unfair and unsafe working conditions. The study appears in 
Policy Matters, a quarterly journal published by UC Riverside. And with that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your iPod by searching for the WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.